welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran and on today's show, this year's Earth Day comes at a time of dire warnings for the future of the planet. The latest UN climate report says we must have carbon emissions by the end of this decade or face catastrophic consequences. Our guest today is Kathleen Rogers, president of the Earth Day Network. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. I'd like to start by bringing us back to last year and to the COP26 climate Mm -hmm. summit in Glasgow, Scotland, because I think the theme of this year's Earth Day activities really have its nexus there. And what you witnessed or didn't witness was happening in Glasgow. You were there. Tell us what was going on and what sparked this idea for investment in our planet being this year's Earth Day theme. Well, it was born, interestingly, uh, although we're all sort of pathologically optimistic in my business, but uh, we recognize that at the COP, uh, that governments were, to be polite, were backpedaling. There were few, if any, new commitments uh, by countries, and all of them were there to up their ambition, is what they say, around climate change. And of course, there are no enforcement provisions. It's mostly reporting in the Paris Agreement, but still, it was a galvanizing attempt to bring countries together to solve climate. So it was a real disappointment. Although there were a few bright spots, uh, methane was one of them. I think for the most part, um, we would all have agreed, both the civil society, the faith groups, everybody who was there, uh, that the governments were really not pushing each other or themselves to step up any new commitments on climate, which as you know, based on the IPCC report, the most recent one, uh, is exactly what we need. However, On the other side of town uh, was the business community meeting large, large numbers of the business community. And you could feel the excitement. You could feel that you were in the middle of some kind of economic revolution. And while that was primarily made up of the global north, there were very few people from the global south there. You did think that the speeches, the content, the agreements, the technologies that they were talking and pushing and and, um, celebrating we're all part of a huge effort of the business community to both get it together on climate, make themselves more transparent and make a lot of money solving the crisis. So I think most of us walked away thinking that technology and business had to be had to be added to the table and needed to be the third leg of the stool, part of the triumvirate of organizations, groups and parts of society that were going to solve climate while the governments lag behind and the environmentalists sort of rip their hair out. From what you described there, it almost sounds like two separate conversations were happening in Glasgow. You had the business community talking about what they're going to do and how they are already in many ways spearheading some of this new green economic revolution. In the meantime, you had the political representatives there still mired to the fossil fuel industry. And so talk us through what business leaders, what businesses, what technologies are actually really grappling this issue, who was either there physically in Glasgow or at least now who was there metaphorically at the table having these discussions about the green economy? Well, it was a vast, broad set of interests. And when you're talking about clean energy, you're talking about reinventing everything that I'm looking at right now, that you're looking right at right now. The conversations were broad and varied, and they included everything from fashion uh, to how we build buildings, to, of course, 
um, transportation and both in the sky and um, on the ground. And just about every conceivable industry was represented there. A lot of tech, a lot of interest in monitor and creating monitoring and creating operations that would allow uh, people and other entities to control energy. So it really was a vast reconfiguring of society and the sky was the limit. So again, all of the major obvious industries were there, but there were inventors uh, from kids to adults. One of our, um, my future, my voice heroes, a young 15 year old Indian woman was there because she'd invented a solar iron, which in the those parts of the developing world in the global South that are manufactured in the manufacturing process or putting together articles of clothing, that solar iron would be very useful. So we had those sorts of activities that don't seem that big, but actually impact millions of people. You mentioned there that in the rooms where these conversations were happening and really in the spaces where they're continuing to happen, there's not that much representation of the global south. These are really business leaders, tech leaders from the global north. And of course, there has been such disproportionate impact of the climate crisis on the global south. And I know that the Earth Day Network has racial and economic and social justice at the core of your mission as well. So how, how do we make that more equitable when we're still seeing the Global South being exploited, even, say, by some of the chemicals and minerals needed for batteries and, and for some of this new green technology? Are some of these conversations happening at all about equity? No, I'm sorry they weren't. I mean, there was a little lip service to it, but you brought up the great irony that we can't run most of the global north that's raking in the money and um, are growing economically are largely dependent on um, resources, minerals, et cetera, uh, that are found in the global south. But the contracts that those countries signed a long time ago, companies that were smart enough to sign them, really have, they've got to go back and renegotiate because there's no reason why Botswana or Chile or the Congo, all of which are you know, important for providing natural resources or minerals, chemicals, et cetera, to uh, fire up and produce our um, engines, literally and figuratively, are coming from those countries. And they need to claw back those contracts and begin to benefit. And there's no reason why they can't be making their own solar panels. The beauty of the green economy is it can be entirely local. Everything can be local. It's not like the tech industry. Well, I suppose it could be too, but these mass producers of, of phones and computers, it's a different story when it comes to energy because you know it wastes a lot of energy if you don't create it and use it locally. So it's really important for those countries to do a couple of things. One is create a long-term economic plan that starts at the beginning and works backwards and allows them to set goals and objectives that would lead to their direct participation in the green economy Number two, they absolutely have to build a um, educated workforce. Uh, one of the campaigns that we're working on is climate literacy. And the goal of the climate literacy project is not just to educate people and integrate climate education into K through 12 school or universities. It's also to create a kind of excitement around jobs. And that of course leads to justice. And so civic participation is also a key element of creating a robust green economy. So it involves governments, business, green consumers, and people who can understand and participate in the communications and in the uh, policy arena. 
So all of those elements require a very educated workforce. Again, not just on the science, but on the opportunity and the prospects for jobs. Almost every country can, can redesign their economy to benefit because it's so obvious, it's so natural as how, how to do it. But in the meantime, they really have to look at what they're providing to the global north, which will allow the global north to own the whole thing, as they have in every other economic revolution. You know, as we talk about building a green economy, of course, we have to talk about what's happening or rather not really happening here in the US around the Green New Deal efforts to implement policies that would bring forward so much of this uh, sustainability centric economy. That seems to have stalled in so many ways. At the same time, we're still seeing a very much an outsized influence of the fossil fuel industry. And so while we are seeing businesses, business leaders, uh, tech leaders, albeit dominant in the global north, really stepping into this space, where is their political influence? I mean, are we going to see them have as much influence as we have had the fossil fuel industry play in our politics? No, I don't think so. Not right now. I mean, you know, again, in any economic revolution, it sort of takes hindsight to say, oh, yes, I didn't really notice that happening, but it was while I was um, sort of asleep at the wheel or I wasn't paying attention. The federal government, for example, and particularly through the energy department, is lending a lot of money for infrastructure. Um, the government in general is really sort of open for business for green tech, but we also have two things going on. One, still billions of dollars subsidizing and underwriting the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we have also um, a system that allows one or two senators in the United States, that's what's happening, to block progress, even inside the Democratic Party. But our country is split. And so we cannot get agreement, in part because, sadly, I think many members of Congress are under the influence with political contributions from the oil and gas industry. Many of them see their economies in their own states, maybe in trouble, but that's just because they're not thinking or planning ahead, which is unfortunate for those uh, states that are represented by uh, even Democrats who believe in old industries like coal and Joe Manchin and others. Uh, but I do think there's this seesaw thing going on, as I describe it, two steps forward, one step back. But it is inevitable uh, that we will move in this direction. People love the status quo. And so whether it's ExxonMobil or Shell or whatever, um, they see their business model needing to change and they will change over time. Interestingly, both uh, most of the major oil companies have announced tragically, in my view, that their growth over the next 10 years and 75% of their growth will be moving from oil into plastics. And in my view, the plastics uh, crisis is reaching epidemic proportions and is almost as bad as climate change because of the health impacts to our oceans, to our bodies. And now we know that plastic microparticles are floating around in our bloodstream and adhering to our major organs. It's not exactly what I want to hear. So I don't think that industry, really that industry, the fossil fuel industry is planning a big switch. They're just planning some new products using the same old stuff. Well, of course, plastics and the fossil fuel industry, two sides of the same coin, both, you know, mired in oil, essentially. And I know that legislation is being pushed through to try to regulate what's happening with plastics. As you've described it there, it's in many ways as equal a public health crisis as what's happening with the climate crisis. And of course, the two things are so connected. There are so many reports coming out about the impact on fertility, on the impact of neurological issues, pediatricians expressing concern 
concern. We're finding microplastics in breast milk and in every organs, it seems. So talk about the Earth Day Network's campaign around plastics and some of the progress that you are seeing and making globally when it comes to regulation and legislation. Yeah, I think we are at this point um, beginning to ride the, the wave on reform around plastics. Uh, it's really baby steps. But if you think about the climate agreement, it took 15 years at least to put that together from a glimmer of a conversation to negotiations over more than a decade, uh, at least that long, to come up with a framework around the climate issue. And again, there aren't enforcement provisions in that agreement either. So too in the plastics treaty, which was just introduced by um, Rwanda, interestingly, and Chile, two incredibly forward-thinking women uh, environmental leaders in those two respective countries, uh, presented along with EU support a plastics treaty that's the beginning of a conversation. It does not, in fact, look forward to the days when plastic would be uh, come, you know, obsolete. It's mostly focused on the cradle to grave um, control of plastic. So from the time it's produced till the time it's theoretically recycled, which parenthetically, as you know, is not working in any country, uh, plastics would have uh, be labeled and be controlled and there would be burdens on certain players and parts of that industry. Although again, uh, there are no penalties, uh, there's no enforcement. And so it's largely the beginning of a process, which I hope will lead to a treaty which has you know, more teeth uh, and, and penalties. I don't expect that to happen right away. I don't even expect to happen in the next five to six years. But interestingly, Earth Day's kind of taking a new tact on this. We have about 100 million people that do cleanups. 90% of it's either cigarette butts or plastic. 100 million people worldwide are out there volunteering. But what we haven't done and what we're doing now is trying to turn that 100 million people into advocates for a plastics treaty because they and we are getting pretty sick of the landscapes covered in plastic, which has gotten worse, much worse in the last 10 years. And so we are now moving those cleanup people into what we hope will be true advocates for stopping the plastic that they spend their time cleaning up every day. They just don't want to do it anymore without taking that political step or policy step. So we're excited about this new approach to engage those people. But again, it's going to take a lot of people complaining. It will take a lot of, of invention and innovation in the industry. And I don't think that most companies will be able to rely on, we're going to recycle it much longer because it just isn't happening. You're listening to Just Solutions, a podcast from Free Speech TV. Our guest today is Kathleen Rogers, president of the Earth Day Network. Find out more at earthday.org and find out more about this show and watch past episodes at freespeech.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. Well, Kathleen, just, you know, to continue discussion around plastics, when you were talking about the business and technology leaders who were there at COP26 having almost separate conversations to what the political establishment were having around their role in the climate crisis, it does seem that plastics is a way that business and entrepreneurship, at least, could, could step into that because, of course, plastics 
is is a massive problem globally. I mean, is this something that you're seeing from, you know, every business is using plastics, but it does seem that there are alternatives to us, that there's no need for most of the plastic being used, but there's also space for entrepreneurship and inventors to find new biodegradable uh, substances that can be used in its place. Is this something you're seeing? Yes. Um, so we've um, interviewed people and talked to people who are using materials as uh, different as mushrooms um, to uh, uh, and other plant-based materials to make it. Uh, I think the, the problem is not the innovation or the inventions. They're there. It's bringing them to scale. And then it's definitely um, a sort of David and Goliath situation, because if you have massive factories around the world. They're in the United, they're all over the United States. I mean, there are plants opening, even though most of the United States is in the process of banning plastic straws, they're opening plants in the United States, big plants that produce hundreds of millions of plastic straws that they'll then, you know, exceed beyond our comprehension on their uh, global footprint to ship them around the world to countries that haven't moved in that direction. So it's, it's, you have the industry fighting against those innovations because they don't want to convert their plants. They want to do something with their oil. They don't want to leave it in the ground. And even in the clothing manufacturers, and I'm sure you can see, and we're all wearing plastic. Almost all of our clothes are made out of oil and plastics. And that's part of the way it's getting into our skin. So it's not just the oil industry in the plastic bottle, straw, or all the medical equipment that's made out of plastic, which is really useful and really important. You have to find ways and opportunities to convince the industry that they're going to have to spend the money to convert those plants, to make straws, bags, whatever they're going to make out of something that's truly biodegradable. And by that itself is a loaded question because you actually have to come up with the standards of what is truly biodegradable. So, and the fashion industry has to move away from plastics because other than a few materials, like cotton, which is also land intensive, we're all wearing plastic on our bodies and all those microfibers are coming off in our water when we wash them or clean them. So the entire oil industry needs to sit down at the table and be told that, you know, you're going to have 10 years at the most to convert all of these products that are made out of oil into something that's entirely biodegradable. And unfortunately for them, until they get with the program, they're going to have to leave the oil in the ground. That's the only opportunity we have to save the planet. You mentioned clothing there, of course, plastic is so ubiquitous and so much of clothing, but even natural fibers have their own environmental impact with chlorine and the amount of water that's used in producing this. And I know fast fashion is a big part of the campaigns of the Earth Day Network because of the carbon intensive nature of clothing. And it's not just the, the production of it, but it's the the speed of the production. It's like every three weeks, a whole new line is brought out. So for people watching now as consumers, you know, so often the messaging around uh, being a better environmental steward, a lot of that is focused on personal responsibility. We're talking about the business responsibility and how political leaders have abdicated really from their responsibilities. But if we get back to the consumer responsibility, talk us through the, the lens of fast fashion and its impact on the environment and why that is something the Earth Day Network is tackling. Well, there are two really important parts of what you just um, talked about. One is the role of the consumer. So I've been doing this a long time. Earth Day is all about those 20 million people that came out on the streets 
the legacy of Earth Day is engaging ordinary people, people who aren't in the business like I am, to uh, come up with, you know, to create opportunities for themselves to do something for the planet, all of which I believe in. However, I do think that the role of government and the role of industry, in this case, fashion, is, is much more important. It is extremely difficult to tell people not to buy a nice looking shirt at a store that could be maybe $5 or even less. And those stores, as you said, turn over their clothing about every three weeks. And it is incredibly enticing to younger people who are most of the major consumers to go in there and see something nice. Fashion is a statement. It's um, a way of expressing yourself. And so I believe it's really a combination of convincing the industry that they have to do something about it. And there is, by the way, legislation in New York State, the EU, um, and will soon be in California. These are major distribution places and centers of fashion that will require companies. It's really radical legislation that will require them to control the production, to um, understand and be responsible for sort of, again, the cradle to grave um, uh, perspective on what you do in a, an article of clothing is first conceived of in a designer's mind all the way to when it ends tragi tragically in the landfills. Hundreds of millions, billions of pieces of fabric and clothing end up in landfills every year and they degrade. They're made out of plastic or even if they're made out of cotton, they're dyed, they have chlorine and they begin to seep down into the water system, which flows in many directions. So it contains chemicals, extraordinarily bad chemicals that then flow into our water, out into our oceans, end up in our food, and eventually end up not just on our bodies, but in our bodies. So it's a cycle that needs to be broken. However, on the question of the role of consumers, and it's probably because I've been doing it a long time, I think our messages need to be more positive and not guilt trip um, consumers into buying less. We have to make it exciting and innovative and healthy, and they will respond to that. Just telling them no, to just say no to everything, it isn't working, it hasn't worked, and it won't work in the future. You have to present them with something that's really attractive um, and that both is something they'll want to be part of, to buy, to sell their friends on, because it's all about peer pressure and peer experiences, and then find a way to make sure that um, industry takes back those clothes that they can't sell or that are used and thrown away after one or two uses. And so they don't end up in our landfill. So they're recycled and reused. That will take a fundamental change, but it won't be driven by consumers. It'll have to be driven by governments. In terms of positive messaging, it seems that those positive messages are few and far between when we're getting such dire warnings coming out. You know, in the introduction, we talked about the latest IPCC report that says we have to essentially have our carbon emissions in the next decade or we're really facing catastrophic consequences. We're already living through many of those catastrophic consequences right now. But also part of that report, they did offer some things that could be done and that can be done and can be scaled up. One of them is investing in our um biodiversity and reversing deforestation. And I know that's a big focus as well. It's a big campaign of the Earth Day Network, the Canopy Project. These are positive things that can be done. And do you think that we need to frame things in a way that, well, this is what we can do as opposed to the constant messaging of, 
of what not to do. Talk a little bit about how messaging is so important and then also the Canopy Project. Yeah, again, I think it doesn't matter whether it's me or anybody. I respond to um, positive messages. Uh, fear works for about five minutes. You know, we have adrenaline and we have other parts of our body. But when you're under constant threat from messaging, you tend to turn a deaf ear to it. Even I do. And so, uh, and regardless of the subject, it could be the pandemic, it could be climate change, it could be water. It's it's very difficult for human beings to live in constant fear. And so they turn away from it. So coming up with alternative messaging that's positive, that convinces them in a green future is one that is entirely awesome. It's healthy. It will be productive. Uh, they'll be able to get new and different and healthier jobs. I mean, you know, it's it's extraordinary to me that I've talked to owners of, of mining facilities and they've all talked about how they love their miners and they're like family. Uh, and these gentlemen that I spoke with were all in their 70s and 80s. And I said, well, if you love them, the average age of a of a coal miner, either when they die or debilit are completely debilitated, is in their 50s. They're all either dead or dying or ill. And you're 20 years older than they are, yet you call them family members. It's so ridiculous. But even if I say that, it doesn't help when you've been doing something for generations like coal mining or uh, growing cotton or growing tobacco, whatever it is that you're doing over and over. The cultural shift will not come from warning people or talking about the you know dire impacts. It will come from positive reinforcement about where they can go with their money, where people can go to find jobs, even if it means retooling the community itself because people don't want to move necessarily. So it's all about how you do it. And then, of course, it has to be real. So anytime you're shutting down a coal-fired power plant in a community, which many in my community are heavily invested in doing, you better be coming in with an economic plan that will make those community members feel really secure about their future for them and their kids. And so it's really important to have a plan that speaks to the future, that speaks to uh, not just the far future, but right now, the near future, to convince people um, that they'll be able to accomplish the same things they want in life, but they don't have to go underground to do it. They don't have to be in dirty industries. They don't have to be um, allowing them or their family members to be sick, whether that's farm workers or coal miners or anybody in the business of producing anything. And so what we're finding is those messages are really exciting. And on the reforestation um, and it goes to the issue of jobs. The Canopy Project, which we, we love our Canopy Project, we operate in about 19 countries that have dire need for reforestation. And in all of our projects, there's an economic development part of it. So I'll give you an example. We're going to be planting 2 million trees, mangroves in India. And, hope, and we're hopeful to do the same thing in Bangladesh. But the reason we're so excited about it is because mangroves, which you know are part of the sea and are barriers to big storms, and so they protect people. They're also amazing um, laboratories for fish and, and marine life, which then brings back the industries that have been devastating when the mangroves have been lost. And so we try to combine all of our tree planting projects, whether they're in Africa, the Middle East, um, East Asia, all of them um, are have an economic development a um, community development uh, part to it, a, bio, a strong biodiversity 
uh, part. So we try to combine those elements. So we're just not walking into a community and insisting they reforest areas that they had to cut down for firewood. It just doesn't work. So again, we're constantly moving towards that. It's greener, it's better, and it's economically viable for you to participate in this. In one project in India, we're planting forests, but we're planting tens of thousands of fruit trees that the communities can then harvest um, for themselves and then take to market. It's working really well. Now, it's a big planet and we have to do more of it, but I do think projects that we have under the Canopy Project and other groups do too, but we are particularly focused on those three parts, um, reforesting, biodiversity and economic development. Kathleen Rogers is president of the Earth Day Network. Find out more at earthday.org. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. You can watch past episodes at freespeech.org. Engage with us on social media and join the conversation. Hashtag Just Solutions at Free Speech TV. And subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. For Just Solutions, I'm Maeve Conran.